and we uh, pray now that you will speak to us through these stories and uh, help us uh, to recognize uh, what our sin is like before you and to learn Lord, repentance and true faith and obedience in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now there was uh, this uh, well-known Christian writer, I'm sure all of you might have heard of him, Don Carson, who wrote in one of his books uh, an, an incident that happened to him many years ago when he was studying in Germany. And he said that he met this African guy who was studying in Germany who was also learning German like him. And uh, once in a while this man would get sick of studying German and he would duck into the Geylang district of town. Okay, And then... He was actually a married man, but his wife was actually back in Africa. So he asked his man, why do you do that? I know that you, don't exp- you, you, know, you probably wouldn't allow your wife to sleep around like this, but you go into the red light district all the time. And the African guy said, well, you know, shrugged and said, well, God is bound to forgive us, isn't it? That's his job. It's God's job to forgive. Now, if you think about it, isn't it true that sometimes we too can have a sense that you know, we just have a very indifferent, very bought up attitude to sin in our lives. And in today's uh, passage in Judges, which is really very dark and sordid, we see part of Israel hardening themselves against sin. And they no longer really care at all about what God has to say. But before we jump too quickly to judge them, you know, let us reflect also in this story how we too can sometimes be like Israel. And so now we're going to just dive into this story. It's three chapters long. Have your Bibles open there. And we want to have a look. This is our last story from Judges, so we want to uh, really savor it. Okay? Alright, so the story begins in chapter 19 with this uh, Israelite man. Uh, and last week we talked about this Levite who traveled from uh, from Bethlehem in Judah up to Ephraim, right? This week is another Levite guy who does the reverse thing. He travels from Ephraim to Bethlehem, okay? So I'll show you a map. Uh, okay, so what we're talking about is he, he's traveling from Ephraim, okay, down to Bethlehem. So you can see that he has to pass through this territory of Benjamin here, all right? Okay, so he goes to Bethlehem because his concubine left him and went to stay with her father down in Bethlehem. So he decided after four months, I want to get her back. So he went down okay, with his servant and his donkeys and he went down to his father-in-law's place and his father-in-law is really amazingly generous, isn't it? Very, very hospitable, over the top really. Keeps asking to stay and stay another day and another day and until the fifth day he couldn't take it anymore. He said, I have to leave now. Even though it wasn't a very good decision for him to leave you know, so late in the day, because he has to walk, but uh, he said, never mind, I'm just going to leave. So on the way, he stopped by Jebus, which is the old name for Jerusalem. Okay, at that time, Jerusalem was still not an Israelite city, it hadn't been conquered yet. It belonged to the Canaanites called Jebusites. Okay? So maybe I'll turn to the next map, which is just a close-up of that region. So Bethlehem's down here, Jebus is here. And then his servant tells him, hey, you know, it's getting dark. Why don't we um, hang around? Why don't we stay here for the night in this city of the Jebusites? And he says, "No, no, we can't. We can't stay there because it's a Canaanite place. You know, these guys are dangerous, and better go to a place where there are Israelites." Okay, so we'll go to either Gibeah or Ramah in the territory of Benjamin. Okay, so they walk, walk, and then it got dark when they got to Gibeah. So they said, "Okay, we'll stay here for the night." Okay. Now in those days, they didn't have hotels like what we do today. So it was very important for people to provide hospitality 
to travelers. Okay, it was very important value in their society. So people would open their homes to, to strangers, especially to fellow Israelites. They provide food, provide lodging, provide food for their animals as well. The host uh, had a very important responsibility to, uh, to protect whoever was under their roof. So the first sign for us that something is wrong in, in Benjamin is that these travelers are sitting in the city square and nobody actually cares. Nobody actually picks them up to ask them to come home with us and stay with us. Right? They're just sitting down there with their donkeys and the, the wife and, and so on. And uh, who knows, maybe the Levite got a bit desperate and he tried to ask around you know, a few Benjamites, but no response. So here we can see that the people of Benjamin are definitely not known for their hospitality. Okay? So it was getting dark and this guy was getting desperate. But then suddenly, this old man came out from the fields. He was returning home. And this old man is not from the territory of Benjamin, but from the territory of Ephraim further up. Okay? But he was living in Gibeah at that time. So he said, well, why don't you come home and stay with me? Just don't hang around the city square, you know, which kind of sounds a bit sinister, right? It could be a bit dangerous. So come home with me, okay? So this, this non-local guy did what all the locals failed to do. Now what happens next in the story is very shocking stuff, isn't it? You've read, we've heard the reading. It's definitely M18 or R21 kind of uh, material. This is one of the lowest points in the history of Israel, isn't it? Because you have some wicked men, the scumbags of the city, who surround this house, and they're pounding at the door, banging on the door, and say, bring out that guy, you know, we want to have sex with him. So the old man goes out and tries to reason with these guys, and says, hey, come on guys, don't do such a sick and twisted thing, that's so perverted, this guy is my guest, okay, we must, I must protect him, I can't allow you to do that to him. Hey, but I have a virgin daughter here, you know, and this guy is a concubine. Well, take them, take them, you know. Do whatever you want with them. Just take them. Don't, don't touch my, my guest, this guy. So, these guys outside refuse. They refuse. But in the end, the Levite man just pushed his concubine out the door and uh, he left her outside to be, to be ravaged, to be gang raped, to be molested and tormented all night. And he went off to bed. Now, the next morning, he woke up, he brushed his teeth and shaved and packed his clothes and got ready to go out and went out the door and then he saw his concubine sprawled on the, on the threshold of the door, right? Her hands were at the door. And he said, well, come on, we're late, get out, let's go. <laughs> no response, how come? Okay, come on, don't be lazy, just get out and go. And then, no response. So he took a closer look and she was either dying or she was dead, right? And she was at least unconscious. So he hauled her onto his donkey and brought her all the way back from Gibeah up to, F, up to wherever he comes from in Ephraim. And then when he got there, he took a knife and cut her up into 12 pieces and then put it in the sink post and uh, sent it to all the 12 areas of Sing, uh, of not Singapore, sorry. <laughs> of Israel, okay? Alright. Now, and, you know, imagine if you are somebody living in, you know, Dan or wherever, Manasseh or something, and you open your morning post, and this is why you find a, an arm or a foot or a, a head, you know, even. That's shocking, isn't it? And that's why we see in verse 30, they were shocked. They say, such a thing has never been seen or done. Not since the day the Israelites 
came up out of Egypt. Most likely the messengers who took along the body parts would have explained to them what happened. And so what they're referring to is not just the fact that we have received the body part in the mail. What they're saying is that this kind of, this kind of sick crime, you know, with the intended homosexual rape of a man and the actual rape and murder of this woman is something that is unprecedented in all of Israelite history. So what can we learn from this chapter, from such a horrible train of events that happens? And we can see everyone in this story, well almost everyone in this story, has some flaw, has some problem, isn't it? So we can start with the concubine who left her husband, probably her husband, this Levite guy, it's not the easiest husband to have, I mean we can tell from the story, right? But still, that doesn't make it right for her to leave her husband. But her wrongdoings are nothing compared to her husband's wrongdoings, isn't it? I mean, you wonder why he would go to all the effort to bring her back when he would treat her like this in the end. You see, he, in order to save himself, in order to save his neck, he sent his concubine out to face the music all by herself. I mean, he's, how heartless can you be? It's not so selfish, so cruel. You can even go to bed after sending your concubine out to be raped. Not just that, the next morning he gets up and then he walks past her casually as, as though nothing has happened. He doesn't feel the least bit guilty at all about what happened last night. See, for him, it's all about looking after number one, isn't it? She, he treats her like, like a piece of his property almost, isn't it? To be used as it suits him. And that's, that's probably why it tells us in verse 27, when her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house, look how... How the, the, the narrator of the story tells us about this man. He didn't say her husband. He says her master. Because he is treating her as though he is the master. Not just as a husband. And not just that. He doesn't even show respect to her dead body. But he desecrates her body. He, he just uses it as something for him to make his case to the rest of Israel. And to top it all off, he is actually a Levite. Somebody from the tribe of Levi who is supposed to be like a, a church minister, a minister of God's tabernacle, somebody who knows God's law, somebody who is supposed to teach others, and somebody who is actually probably on the way to the house of God in Bethel. Now, but what about this, the other people in the story? Whether well, you have the old man who is very generous and welcoming, and that's wonderful. You know, we know that uh, he was. You know, it was really culturally shameful to allow your guest to be mistreated in your own house. So he tried to protect the guest, which is good. But he offered his virgin daughter. I mean, that is definitely wrong, isn't it? How could you do that? And last but not least, we have the men of Benjamin. And if you have read the Bible at all, you will know, you have heard the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis chapter 19. I won't read to you the story. I hope that you know it. If you don't, you can read Genesis 19. But in the Bible, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is the prime example of the worst kind of rebellion against God. So it's a huge shock to us here when we see that Gibeah is become another Sodom. You see, the people of Israel have, have completely abandoned God. They've become Canaanites. And not only are they lacking in hospitality in Benjamin, but they are rapists and they are immoral. 
They're murderers. Do you think that all these people, you know, the Levite man, the old man from Ephraim, the Benjamites, do you think they were especially wicked? Do you think, you know, that you would never, ever do anything such as that yourself? But if you look deep into your own hearts, you know, we know that we too are capable of great sin. Given the right circumstances, we can do horrendous sin before God. Now what was it that caused the, the men of Benjamin to behave like Sodom? Well, we don't know, but maybe it was the peer pressure. or you know, Maybe they felt they had safety in numbers. Maybe it was just the sheer temptation of it. You see, if you take away the usual restraints from somebody, take away the fear of punishment, take away the disapproving eyes of society, and take away good influence from family and friends, what do you get? Well, people will often do whatever pleases them, isn't it? They will indulge their wildest fantasies. They will show the worst side of themselves. So in, in World War II, all it took for polite, ordinary Japanese men to commit shocking crimes of massacres and human experiments and things like that was just because everybody else was doing it. It was the expected thing. And same thing happened in Germany. So we are capable of more sin than we think sometimes, especially when nobody's watching. So how many of us have been guilty of road rage or you know, uh, rude behavior in public because we think nobody around knows who we are? How many of us have traveled overseas alone and feel that we have the freedom to do many things that we would not do at home because nobody around is watching us? Or how many of us secretly watch pornography on the internet or things like that because nobody's watching? You see, we are all capable of great sin. We are all capable of immorality, of rage or worse, given the right circumstances, given the right provocations. That is why God says in the Bible, in the book of Jeremiah, I'll show you the verse up here. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Who can understand the death of sin of the human heart? So the first step to being right before God is to know that the root problem for us is our sin. See, the first step to our cure is to diagnose the cause of our sickness. And the cause is our hidden sin. Do not deny your sin. Don't try and cover it up. Don't try and make excuses. God knows all of it. And God also says in this passage, in the next verse, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward a man according to his conduct according to what his deeds deserve. So instead of hiding your sin, confess your sin before God, lay it into, in the open before his eyes, admit your sin to God for what it is, and let us, let us see our sin from God's perspective. Let's see that it is actually wickedness and rebellion before God. Now Israel has hit rock bottom here, now she's no better now than the worst city ever, Sodom. And if God had to rain 
sulfur and brimstone on Sodom for their sin, what will God do to Gibeah of Benjamin? Well, we see that in chapter 20, the next chapter. And in the next chapter, we have this council of the tribes of Israel meeting at Mizpah. Okay, so maybe we'll go back to the previous uh, map. So, Mizpah is up here, somewhere not too far from Gibeah. Okay, so it says in uh, chapter 20, verse 1, that all Israelites from Dan to Beersheba from the land of Gilead came out as one man. Can we, can we go back to the previous map? Sorry, the, the previous one. Yeah. So what it says from Dan, up here which we saw last week Dan, to Beersheba all the way down here, it means from north to south, it's like saying from, from Woodlands to Marina Bay and Gilead in the east, which is this region here. So from Jurong to Changi. Okay? All of Israel came out against the tribe of Benjamin. And so, this council of the tribes meeting at Mizpah had a very impressive number. All the leaders of Israel everywhere, 400,000 soldiers, very impressive. You see, Israel has never been so united since the days of Joshua. But sadly, this unity is not to fight the enemy. This unity is to fight their own brothers in Benjamin. And so we have this council where the Levi gives the key testimony, he tells them all the events that happened. He adds a bit of his own tweaking to make himself look better in, in from verse 4 onwards. And so the decision of the council is to punish the, the wicked men of Gibeah. And they send messengers throughout the land of Benjamin, it says, in verse 12, they ask them, what about this awful crime that was committed among you? Surrender those wicked men of Gibeah so that we may put them to death and purge the evil of, from Israel. Now what is the tribe of Benjamin's response to this? Well, they said, no, we won't have our brothers be surrendered to you and you go and execute them. No, I'm going to shield them from being punished. Even though the punishment is right and according to God's law. See, they are even willing to go to war to, to, to kind of shield and defend their own brother Benjamites. How wicked has this tribe of Benjamin become? See, it it's not just a few men in Gibeah now who are guilty. It's actually the whole tribe now who is stained by association. Because they are not shocked at how awful this crime is. They just shrug the shoulders and say, well, blood is thicker than water. They brush it aside, right? They say, these are our brothers, these are our cousins, our, our second, third cousins. So we are not going to actually surrender them. They are, they are Benjamites, come on. So they refuse to allow justice to be done. And in fact, they are actually condoning it. They are approving of the crime. So they are more loyal to their brothers than they are to God. And so they gather a very big army to fight 26,700 Benjamites against 400,000 men of Israel. And the men of Israel go up to, to Bethel, which is uh, where the house of God is at that time. I uh, will show you that map again, sorry. Next one. So, uh, yeah, Bethel is up here. Okay, so they were at Mizpah. They go up to Bethel and uh, they ask God there at the tabernacle. They say, who of us shall f uh, go first to fight? And that's in verse 18. And God says, Judah shall go first. Now that reminds us of something that happened 
in the in the beginning of the book of Judges, isn't it? If you remember, all the way back to the first verse of Judges, the first verse of Judges is after uh, the the previous one. After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, "Who will be the first to go up and fight for us against the Canaanites?" And the Lord answered, "Judah is to go. I have given the land into their hands." So the book of Judges opens and closes with the people of Israel asking God about a battle. But the thing is. This time, the battle is not against the Canaanites. This time, it's against their own people. It's a, it's a civil war now. So God directs, Is- uh, directs Israel to go and fight Benjamin. But the surprising thing is, God doesn't give them success in battle. See, it says here that 22,000 of the Israelites were slaughtered that day by the men of Benjamin. Now, this territory of Benjamin is actually a very hilly area. So, it would be much easier to defend than to attack. And the men of Benjamin will be very familiar with the terrain there, so they know. And some of them have this special unit of 700 left-handed men who can sling a stone and in the opposite direction, you see, because normally you hold your sh- if you're right-handed, you hold your shield on this side, right? But if the stone is coming from this side, you're gone, you see? So they managed to kill many of the Israelites. And after a day of heavy casualties, heavy fighting, the men of Israel... Uh, retreated and uh, you know reget- regrouped and they went again and wept before the Lord God and says God are you sure that you want us to fight against Benjamin is that really your will and God says yes go and fight against them so this war we can see it's not just the initiative of the Israelites it's actually God fighting against the Benjamites but the second day again no luck isn't it or no success these Israelites are totally defeated. Another 18,000 people die in battle. And so all of them go up to Bethel again and cry out to the Lord. They fasted. They offered sacrifices to the Lord. And again they ask God, Why is this happening? Lord, do you really want us to go and fight? And the Lord answered, Go, for tomorrow I will give them into your hands. Now this means that it is the reason why they were defeated the first two times is because God didn't give them into their hands the first two times, isn't it? It's God ultimately who allowed those terrible defeats. But but why? You know, why would God command them to do something and not help them to do it? Why would God tell us to do something and only have more trouble instead of success when we do it? Now we are not told the answer to that. Yes, we can speculate we can say, well, maybe the Israelites, uh, you know, thought the Benjamites were a pushover, like easy, like you know, there's four hundred thousand of us, there's only twenty six thousand of them. No way we are going to lose. So maybe they proudly relied on their own military strength rather than on depending on God, and God taught them a lesson that they need to depend on Him. Or maybe God was testing them to see whether they would be committed to carrying out God's commands, no matter how tough it got, no matter how hard it got. Maybe God is, maybe it's a test. Or maybe God was punishing them, some people say. Uh, maybe, you know, these guys are not good anyway. We've seen from the book of Judges that they are not great people either. So maybe God is just punishing everybody at the same time. Huh? But at the end of the day, we really do not know why this is happening. But what we can see is that sometimes when we are clearly doing God's will, God allows things to go badly for us. And sometimes God allows setbacks, God allows hardships, even when we are obedient to Him. 
God doesn't feel obliged to tell us why. You know, but look at verses, uh, verses 27 to 28. In verse 27 it says, The Israelites inquired of the Lord. In those days, the ark of the covenant of God was there with Phinehas, son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, ministering before it. See, ultimately, the Israelites have God on their side. They have access to the house of God. They have access to the high priest of God. They have access to the ark of God's covenant. They can consult God and God speaks to them. So because God is on their side, or rather because they are on God's side, ultimately they are going to have the victory. So, you know, when you face difficulties as a believer, well, do not fear. Do not be dismayed. Because God will ultimately give us the final victory because we are on His side. If we trust in Him, then we will not be ashamed. But think about the people of Benjamin. You see, the people of Benjamin may be victorious for a season. You know, they, God allows them, God allows people who oppose Him to go scot-free for a while. To live in great ease and comfort sometimes. But ultimately, God is not on their side. And their end is that they will perish when God comes to judge. So earlier I said that the first step in being right with God is to acknowledge our sin before God. But the problem is, what if we acknowledge our sin, what if we know that we are wrong, but yet we continue in it and continue to indulge in sin? God may allow us to persist in it for a bit longer because He's patient with us now. He wants us to repent rather than be punished. So it says in the New Testament, in the book of Romans, it says, Do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when His righteous judgment will be revealed. Don't show contempt for God's kindness, for God's patience, but turn away from your sin. If you know what you're doing is wrong, turn away from it, turn back to God. The second step to being right with God is to repent of sin. But if you continue to persist in disobeying God, and you, you are actually only storing up wrath for yourself, you are actually you know, going to face God's righteous judgment one day. Don't think that you can escape. Because sin will always come back to bite us, and eventually it destroys us. Always. Now, Israel defeated the Benjamites the third time round because they, they changed their battle strategy and they ambushed them. Okay, we won't go into all the details. Now it shows it says in verse thirty five, it says the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. That is, it wasn't just military strategy that gave them the victory. It was really the Lord who won, who gave them the victory and who in righteous judgment defeated Benjamin. And out of twenty six thousand Benjamite soldiers 600 survived. 600 fled to the rock of Rimon. So there was a huge victory for Israel. But if you think about it, it was a hollow victory. 
Because it was their own brother Israelites who fell dead. Now there are more than 65,000 dead Israelites on both sides. That is what sin leads to. Destruction and to death. And so we move now to chapter 21, which opens with the Israelites not celebrating, but they are mourning and weeping before the Lord because of this great catastrophe in Israel. And after they've done that, they have the clean-up job to do, right? What do we do with those 600 Benjamite men who are hiding in the cave somewhere? Should we kill them or should we spare them? What would God want us to do? Well, the Israelites decide to spare them and allow the tribe of Benjamin to be built up again. They said, well, but we killed everybody, you know, we killed all the women and everyone, so how are we going to find wives for these 600 men? How are we going to let the next generation continue? You see, they had made this oath, right, where they said, we are not going to give our daughters to any of these Benjamite men. Was that, a, was that a good decision? Well, it's actually hard to tell, isn't it? Because if you look carefully at chapter 21, God doesn't say a single thing in chapter 21. And actually the person who wrote chapter 21 didn't make any judgments for us either to tell us whether it was right or it was wrong. So we have to try our best to figure out all these actions. Are they right? Are they wrong? No, maybe they made the oath about the daughters because they didn't want to side with the people of Benjamin. Maybe they, they, wanted to, they said they wanted to purge the evil from Israel. So it doesn't make sense for them to give their daughters for them to propagate more Benjamites, right? So, but the thing is then maybe they haven't counted on the fact that God may not want to exterminate this tribe of Benjamin. God may want to spare some Benjamites. So whatever it is, it may have started with good intentions, but it had unforeseen effects. And that is why we have chapter 21. And then they made another oath earlier on. They say, whoever doesn't come to Mizpah to meet uh, with the rest of Israel, we are going to uh, destroy them as well. We're going to put them to death. Now again, was this a right oath to make? Was it a bit too harsh? Again, we do not know. It's not clear. right? Because why did they make this oath? It's so that Israel is united. It's so that every part of Israel will play a part in the very important matters in Israel. So if you tell everyone, every tribe, you have to come on pain of death and they don't come, what does it tell you? You know, it tells you that they despise their unity with Israel. They feel that they don't belong to God's people, so we might as well cut them out of Israel. So maybe that's why they made the oath. Who knows? So, to give them the benefit of the doubt, even if the, the intentions behind both those oaths were good, the problem is they are trying to use one oath to offset the other oath, isn't it? So they, they say, oh, who didn't come for this assembly at Mizpah? Then they check the records and they realize, ah, Jabesh Gilead didn't turn up. I'll show you the map again on the next slide. So Jabesh Gilead is here in the territory of Gilead where we came across and we looked at the Jephthah story. They didn't go to Mizpah here. So, okay, so they sent all the soldiers there and killed everybody, all the men and the women and the children, but they left the virgins alone. Okay, so they found 400 virgins uh, uh, that they could use for the Benjamites. Now, was this right for them to have done that? Well, it, it depends on what the original oath was, isn't it? If they said, whoever doesn't come, we're going to exterminate everybody in that tribe, then, well, they still haven't fulfilled their oath because they spared the virgins. But if they said, whoever doesn't come, 
and it doesn't include the women and the children, but only the men, then they have been too harsh. They have killed too many people. But you see, what they did was because it was convenient. It solved their problem. So they just did it. So now they have 600 Benjamites and 400 brides. What to do? We need 200 more? Then they came up with another bright idea. Okay, why don't we tell the men of Benjamin to go and observe the dancing girls from Shiloh during the festival and then we just tell them to kidnap them and that's it, we fix our problem, right? We just won't uh, let our left hand know what our right hand is doing. Don't tell the parents. Don't tell those guys who are living in Shiloh, okay? So it's just like uh, those leaders probably told everyone, I trust us, we know exactly what we are doing. But they don't send their own daughters to the dance. Okay, they just uh, let those poor guys send their daughters out to the dance, get kidnapped. Is that is that right? Is that fair? No, of course it's not right. right. How can they do that? It's very deceitful. It's not fair for those poor women who were dragged, kicking and screaming to Benjamin. It's not fair for their fathers and for their families who will complain later on. See, the Bible often tells us things that happen, but, the, but it doesn't necessarily approve of all those things that happened. See, the end does not justify the means. When, so when we try to evaluate you know, all the actions of the Israelites in this chapter, it's hard for us, isn't it? We can't say they're all good. We can't say they're all bad. The people generally try to be on God's side, but yet some of the things they do are definitely wrong. See, life is not always so black and white and easy. It's a mixture here, isn't it, of noble intentions mixed with deceptive and rash conduct. But that doesn't take away from what we can learn from this chapter. Because what we can learn from chapter 21 is not, does not depend on whether the Israelites were good or bad. What we learn is that God was faithful to Israel despite all the Israelites' sins. You see, even though God is silent throughout the whole chapter, He doesn't say a single word, but we see His hand working behind the scenes. And in the midst of all that confusion, that moral chaos, the mixed motives, God is working to preserve the tribe of Benjamin so that no tribe is missing from Israel, so that his promise to Israel will be fulfilled and will continue. God is merciful. God is merciful to his sinful people, and even to this tribe of Benjamin, this wicked tribe. And God restores them. You know, the whole of Israel should have been destroyed a long time ago. But God continues to be faithful and preserves them because of his promises. Well, in case you're thinking, well, uh, it's okay for me to sin because God is merciful, right? God will surely, like the, the African man at the beginning, ah, it's God's job to forgive, right? Well, don't think that. Don't presume on God's mercy and grace. Out of 26,000 Benjamites, 600 were spared. Now, just like at other times in Israel's history, God judges the majority of the people for their rebellion and God saves a remnant. Now just because God has mercy on Israel as a nation does not necessarily mean that he has mercy and on all the individual sinners in Benjamin. No. He slaughtered them. See, God's mercy is there to drive us to repentance. That's what Jesus told us as well in the New Testament. When we see a disaster strike, it's because we are as equally wicked. It is a warning to us to repent before it's too late. We should throw ourselves upon God's mercy while the opportunity is still there. 
But when we see God's mercy, the wrong response is to become smug, is to become presumptuous, is to think that God's forgiveness will always be there for us in the end. If we presume like that, we will only face His wrath and His judgment. God has mercy on this sinful tribe, and these 600 men go and take their brides, and they go off to rebuild the cities in Benjamin, which are all burned, and repopulate them. And it's really surprising for us when we turn to the next phase of the story in the book of 1 Samuel. And we realize that the first king to rule Israel comes from none other than the tribe of Benjamin. And not just that, of all places he comes from the notorious town of Gibeah, that is King Saul. God is merciful. So we've come to the end of this book of Judges. And in the second last verse in this book, in verse 24, it says, At that time the Israelites left that place and went home to their tribes and clans, each to his own inheritance. And he says, okay, problem solved, let's all go off home. We all go back to normal life now. But when we read the book, we know that the problem is not solved, isn't it? This book is so dark, it's, it's so turbulent. This God's people started off united and ended up like Canaanites, ended up in chaos and gross sin and almost got annihilated by God. Things are not alright. There is a big problem here. Why is there a big problem here? Well, it tells us at the last verse and it also tells us at the beginning of chapter 19. See, chapter 19 verse 1 and chapter 21 verse 25, it says, In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. See, that is the problem. The problem is everybody is doing what is right in their own eyes. And why is that? It's because they have no king. See, they need a king to keep them faithful to God. That is the role of the ideal king. See, God had told them uh, in, uh, in Moses' time, in, in the book of Deuteronomy, let me show you quickly. God says to them, when you enter the land your God is giving to you and have taken possession of it and settled in it and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you the king, the Lord your God chooses. Now skip to verse 18. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the priests who are Levites. It is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees. So what God is saying is that when you have a king, this ideal king, he is not just to go off and do his own thing, he is to reign under me, he is to follow the law, he is to be faithful to me, and keep Israel faithful to God. But the problem is that later on when they did have kings, none of the kings actually managed to do that. And it wasn't until Jesus came that Israel got their ideal king. See, Jesus comes as the true king, the final king for Israel, their greatest king. And he was a king who was obedient to God even to the point of death. And Jesus enables us to approach God because Jesus died for us on the cross to take the punishment for our sins and he's the one who can deal with our biggest problem of sin. He's the one who can stop us from doing what is right in our own eyes. And so the first step in being right with God is to acknowledge our sin. The second step is to turn away from it. And the third step is to turn to Jesus 
and put our trust in Him. So let me ask you, is Jesus your King? You know, do you actually treat Him as a King? If Jesus is King in your life, you won't be doing whatever is right in your own eyes. But if you choose to persist unrepentantly in sin, you're not going to escape God's judgment. But if you choose to be on God's side and obey Him, He will have mercy on you. He will give you eternal life and blessing forevermore. So trust in Jesus with all your heart and obey Him with all your strength and He will save you. Let's pray now to God. Our Heavenly Father, we confess that we are sinners before a holy and righteous God. We deserve nothing but eternal punishment. But we thank you that in love and mercy and grace, you sent your Son Jesus to die for our sins and lead us to eternal life. Forgive us that so often we refuse to acknowledge our sin before you. And even when we do, we try to indulge it rather than cut it out from our lives and turn back to you. Help us to recognize how much you hate our sin. Help us to take seriously the fact that you will definitely bring judgment on sinners. So help us to give up the sins that we cling to so dearly. Have mercy upon us. Change us by your Holy Spirit that we may have true faith in the Lord Jesus and live obedient lives filled with your joy and your assurance until he returns to bring us to glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.